Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. There's desperation and anguish. More than 80,000 Afghans have since arrived in America. But this story is still unfolding. I'm Andrea Smartin. In my new podcast, Stranger Becomes Neighbor, we'll find out what happens to these new arrivals in our communities. Who would help our newest neighbors? Follow us at kslpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. Hello and welcome to the Loudmouth Project's Voices of Reason. I'm Jason Lee along with Amy Donaldson. On this episode, we are joined by Utah Governor Spencer J. Cox. That is James to the rest of us. <laughs> and uh, we're going to talk to him about a variety of topics that he's been tackling since he's taken over as the state's top public elected official. And thank you very much for joining us, Governor. Hey, it's great to be with both of you again. So we're going to start out with, look, uh, this has been, uh, we, we just finished uh, the state legislature, and we were hoping to get a sense from you of what... Now that you're kind of in the in the uh, in the executive seat, was it any different than uh, your experience? And and what did having that experience as being lieutenant governor, what did it bring to your ability to kind of manage this uh, legis- your, your first legislature legislature as the governor? Yeah, it, it was. It, it's interesting. I mean, it was it was definitely what I I expected. This was my ninth legislative session as either uh, a legislator or or part of the executive branch. We, we know how it starts. We know how the negotiations go. We know how it finishes. Um, th- there was nothing that was surprising about that a- at all. And and certainly my, my experience as lieutenant governor was, was incredibly valuable. And, and not just my experience, but, you know, I, I was only in the legislature for, um, for a year, for one session before uh, Governor Herbert surprised me and asked me to be his lieutenant governor. But but I had I had the, um, the the really cool opportunity to have my own lieutenant governor now, who served for eight years in the uh, in the Senate, and and her relationships and her experience there was just just incredibly valuable. I also have a, a new team of people. It's it's a mix of people who have been here before and some who were experiencing the session for the first time. And, and everybody's trying to get their feet underneath them because you know we, you get sworn in on on January fourth and. Two weeks later, the session starts. So there really isn't time to to uh, to kind of ramp up or figure things out. You just you just go. Uh, but but I will say what was surprising to me this time. Of course, there were some things that were different. We had the pandemic weighing over us, and so half of my time at least is, was spent on something that none of my predecessors spent time on. Right. So you know, none of them had to deal with with the pandemic during the legislative session, and and so that that took time away. But. But, but the, the other thing was a, a real positive, and that is that there was a new willingness um, to collaborate and work together. I don't think it's something that happened by accident. It's something we've been very intentional about. Uh, but, but I have to commend uh, the, the speaker and the president, and, and not just them, but their, their leadership teams and, and legislators themselves. I, I, honestly, in the nine years I've been doing this, I've never seen the level of, of teamwork that we saw this session. And... And, and I, I like that. I think that that's what Utahns expect. I think it leads to better outcomes. And uh, and I, I certainly hope that that's the case as people look back on this session and judge what, what we were able to accomplish. So I had two questions for you. Um, you know, Derek Brown just announced that he's not going to seek to be the chairman of a re-election of the Republican Party. 
I wonder what role you saw him having on sort of the tone of the party and, and bringing the party together. Um, and then secondly, um, you were pretty um, upfront about the fact that you were going to be more liberal in your use of the veto. And then you just recently used it. And I'm wondering why you wanted to let people know that. Like what was the sort of the rationale behind being upfront about it and telling people that you meant to do that and sort of what you think that that how, how that is meant to be used uh, under your administration. Yeah. So let's start yeah, with Derek. Well, my, 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 my thoughts on that have evolved a little bit, but, but as far as Derek goes, um, Derek is a great friend. It's, it's really interesting. Um, he was a mentor of mine in, in the legislature. We served together, and we actually left at, at, at almost the exact same time. Of course, I, I came to be um, uh, the, the lieutenant governor, and he went to work for uh, Senator Mike Lee. And, and we have, we've always been very close. And, and yes, the answer is Derek had a huge impact on, on the tone of the party. I think we saw that, of course, it's, it's been very divisive uh, coming out of the, the, the last couple months, especially after January 6th. And we, we've seen the way even our own Republicans in, in Congress have, have reacted and acted differently. And the way he was able to thread that needle and show support for you know both senators who were sometimes on different different sides of these issues, um, the, the way that he rejected the, the, the partisanship and and the, the vitriol that we've seen uh, through throughout the country, but in both parties, that's very common, right? To to kind of attack the the other side, he, he did a lot less of that and. And, and we're we're desperately going to miss him. I was very sad. I don't blame him. It's it's the it, it, it really is the most thankless job in in, in the state. I mean, the, you, you don't get paid anything. It, it takes up all of your time. You're having to manage personalities and some very very strong personalities and extremes. And uh, he did that better than anyone. So we're we're going to miss him. And and I certainly hope that we can find someone who will uh, who will bring that same attitude to the uh, to the position and and we're we're looking forward to uh, to, to that uh, that selection coming up as far as my use of the veto, I, I did state that in my um, in my state of the state address that, that I, I I fully plan to use the veto power more often than my predecessor I, I, I think that people say that you know that between the executive and the legislative, and there is, and that, that's true. But, but the, ex the executive is part of the legislative. And, and basically, I get to vote on every bill, um, and uh, my, my vote's worth a lot, right? It, it, it's worth a third. It takes, uh, it takes two thirds of them to overwrite my vote. And, and so I, I wanted to put that out there, um, first of all, because it's something I believe in, second of all, so, so that they would understand my philosophy. But, but something interesting happened, and I kind of mentioned that in my, my first answer, and that is, and I think partially because of that, um, that when when we engaged with legislators, they were they were really open to, to work with us, um, and I I I, I just I, I can't say enough good about the legislature this year. I mean, obviously there were some things I didn't like, and there will there will be some more vetoes, and uh, but but by and large. The, there was a list of things that I was planning to veto, and, and almost all of them failed, uh, either in committee or in the last couple of days of the session. And uh, and then the, the the things that we had 
problems with as, as they moved along, they, they were really willing to, to fix them and change them and to, to work with us to, to make them better. And, and so I, I told my team, I said, I'm actually kind of disappointed because I don't have nearly as many ghosts of each other as we had anticipated or thought we would have, but, but that's better. Um, it really is better. You know, vetoes aren't fun. Legislators work really hard to get their stuff done. The, 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 the legislative process is grueling. And then to find out you finally get it all done, and then to find out oh, it, it just goes away, or we have to vote on it again, or I have to keep working on it, that, that's tough. And so I, I, I don't like to do it, I don't, I don't relish it, and I'm grateful for, uh, for legislators that will really work so closely with us. We've got about a minute to go. What I did want to ask you is that you did give up some power, especially as it relates to uh, you know, issuing emergency orders and stuff. So I, I wanted to get your sense of why you decided to give the legislature a bit more of the power that otherwise had sat in the ex executive branch. Yeah, it's, it's a good question, and it's one I thought long and hard about, and, and there's a couple reasons for it. Again, uh, so, so the first is it's their power to begin with, and there's a fundamental misunderstanding of emergency power. We, it is antithetical to the American experience. We don't like that. We, we left the place where the executive had that type of power um, for, for a reason. And so what all emergency orders are is it's power delegated to the governor to act like a legislature because it's too hard to pull the legislature back together in a, in a quick time frame. Um, not only that, but because of a change in our Constitution over the past couple years, um, the legislature has the ability to call themselves into session. So we really didn't give anything up. They had the ability to do all of this all along. And that was really important to me, understanding that they had the ability to do that. But that we do need to work closely together. And, and this is something I would have done anyway, but something that future governors will now be required to do. And that is after 30 days, you have to engage with the legislature. That's not a bad thing. And it's not giving up power. It's, it's, good, it's good leadership. And, uh, and, and it's, it's, it's really good government. And so I, I, I actually believe that this is better government than what we had before, even though um, I, you know, there, there are more things I could have done. Um, I think this is a better way forward, and it still gives the executive the ability to do what needs to be done to protect the, the people of the state of Utah. We, we didn't give that piece up, and, and that was the, the difference for me. Yeah, what does it say about us that we, we the idea is to hold on to power, not share it, right? <laughs> we can kind of discuss that when we come back. I, I, won't, I don't want to run too long here. We're speaking today with Utah Governor Spencer Cox, and we're talking about his role now as the state's top, top elected public official. And when we come back, we'll continue our discussion about many issues uh, facing our state. You're listening to Voices of Reason. Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. There's desperation and anguish. More than 80,000 Afghans have since arrived in America. But this story is still unfolding. I'm Andrea Smartin. In my new podcast, Stranger Becomes Neighbor, we'll find out what happens to these new arrivals in our communities. Who would help our newest neighbors? Follow us at kslpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. We are back with the Loudmouth Project's Voices of Reason. I'm Jason Lee, along with Amy Donaldson. Today we're speaking with Utah Governor Spencer Cox. And, uh, Governor, you, know, you took over in literally a historic time uh, with the uh, pandemic kind of in full swing, but uh, you've been able to kind of start the management of the vaccine rollout. 
wanted to get a sense from you of what that experience has been like and, and how it's gone, you, you feel, and, and what do you look at, you know, currently kind of moving forward in terms of getting more and more people vaccinated? Yeah, thank you. So this has been just just crazy. I, I uh, someday we'll get a chance to really look back on, on things. But you know, when I when I became governor that that first week of January, we, we weren't doing really well um, with our, our vaccine rollout. I think we were 39th in the country for the percentage of doses uh, delivered to the state that had actually been administered, so, so put into arms. And that was unacceptable. And I, I set my team down that, that very first day, and I just said, look, guys, um, this is, this is the, the most important time in your career. I, I, collectively, you know, maybe you know you, you've had some one-off, some important pieces, but but this is it for us. This is this is life or death. This is our economy. This is getting us through the pandemic. There is nothing more important. Not the budget. Not the legislative session. Um, nothing we're working on right now is more important than this. And so, what, whatever you need to get this done, um, we have to do it, and, and we have to do it better than we've done anything else. And, and, and really tried to empower them. And then, and then I put some principles in place. Um, the, the, the first one was that, that we had to hold people accountable um, and, and that we had to get these vaccines in arms within seven days of them arriving in the state. Uh, they, not that they would go bad or anything like that, but, but again, every shot was a, a potential life saved. And uh, so that was the first piece. The second piece was that we needed to centralize the distribution of this because we had these partners and that we had these federal partners and they weren't being held accountable and they were much slower and it was holding things back. And so we, we had to centralize that and, and uh, I made the decision to focus on our local health departments. They're, they're really good at this stuff. It's what they do and we needed to trust them. And so that, that was the second decision that I made. And then the third decision was that we had to prioritize. The CDC had gone about their prioritization very differently. They, they were doing it based on basically your occupation. And, and I said, I just don't believe in that. The science does not agree with that. The, the science says, again, the whole point of, of everything we've done in this pandemic is to prevent hospitalizations and death. Like, like, I mean, getting the virus isn't bad if it if it's like a cold, right? Um, but if it if it puts you in the hospital, that puts you at risk, and it puts our our entire healthcare system at risk. And then, of course, if you die, that's a that's a big problem. And we wanted to avoid those things as much as possible. And we have great data on that. And it really is mostly age based this disease, um, but also that we know that there are some underlying health conditions or comorbidities that make it worse for you. So I just said, we are going to change the way dis we distribute this, and it's going to be based solely on age and comorbidities, and, and we're just going to use the science behind this. And that's exactly what we, we've done so far. Um, I'm so grateful for our teams. Uh, last, uh, last I checked, we were fifth in the nation from 39th for getting those doses in arms, and uh, I, I, everybody's doing a tremendous job. We've now expanded. Um, of course, today we're, we're recording this on Wednesday is the first day that we've opened it up to any adult in the state now who, who wants to get it. Um, we're well over 80% with those over the age of 
70 that have gotten the, the vaccine, mm -hmm. which, which is the highest in the nation or very close to the highest in the nation. Um, and, and so I feel great about that. Now, now, there is some data that shows that we have the, the lowest percentage of our population vaccinated. And I always struggle with that because that's the wrong metric to use. Um, we don't get doses for young people. Young people can't get vaccinated right yeah. now. And Utah has the youngest population in the state. And so when you look at it, it should be based on adult population, which is the only thing that, um, that mm -hmm. the only people that can get vaccinated right now, and we're doing much better when you look at adult population. The other problem they have is, and I've mentioned this before, is that the federal government is using data that is two years old to determine the adult population and the percentage of vaccines that we get. And as of the fastest growing state in the nation, that, mm -hmm. that also puts us at, at a disadvantage. And so they're working on updating those numbers, but states like Utah and Nevada are getting fewer doses as a percentage of their population just because they're using outdated numbers. So we're hoping to get that changed. But, but honestly, overall, um, we feel really, really good about the vaccine rollout and, uh, and our numbers are coming down because of it. And uh, we're, we're, we're in a, a great spot and, and hope, hoping that continues. Let me ask you, um, you know, as you're kind of debating and, and there was some guidance from the federal government that said, do it by occupation. And some of that, I think, was aimed at trying to reopen life, right? Get businesses back, you know, fully reopened. But, um, but you looked at it strictly from the loss of life or the highest hospitalization rate. Um, did that, was that a weird or a, an uncomfortable place to be where you're basically deciding who has access to this life-saving vaccine? Um, you know, who, who did you consult with a group of other people? Like how awesome was that, um, power and conversation? And then the other thing is, did this idea of ending the mask mandate in, I, I think it's April 10th now, um, you know, did that have anything to do with how quickly we moved up and, and now everybody can at least schedule their vaccine appointment? Yeah, yeah, great, great questions, Amy. We, that, that responsibility and that decision is, it, it did weigh heavily and it's the, it's, it's the worst. No, no one should ever have to make those, those decisions. And, and yet we've had to make them throughout the pandemic. And, and of course, Governor Herbert before me, who did a tremendous job in the, in the most difficult of circumstances. It, I, I have to say, I'd, I'd much rather be the, the final decision maker on this side of the pandemic than on the, on the, on the front side of the pandemic, which he yeah. had to do. And, 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 and so, so yeah, and, and it was constant too. I mean, everyone thinks that their occupation is the most important and the most vulnerable. And, and mm -hmm. you know, I, I mean, it was, you know, of course we, we had the healthcare professionals and, and, and I will say we did, um, there, there were a couple occupations that we did prioritize. Um, so, yeah. so the one was not controversial. Everybody agreed that healthcare workers should be at the front of the line. And every state did that. Um, we also prioritized teachers uh, because we knew that in-person learning was so important and teachers had worked so hard this year and that there was a, a different calculus there. It wasn't just about health and safety, but it was about the long-term health of our, our children, of our economy, investing in our kids and making sure we could keep schools open. So, so that's, that's a big piece of it. And, and those were the two exceptions that we made. But, but other than that, yeah, I mean, it was you know, grocery store workers, airline pilots. I, um, you, I mean, you know, it was hard to say to works. them, we said you were essential, but no, you can't have the vaccine first, right? I mean, yeah, that's hard. That, that's, it's really, really hard. It was awful. But I, I, I just, and, and I told them this, I said, look, 
I, I, I've just got to be honest with you, okay? If, if, if a 25-year-old you know, grocery store worker gets infected with this virus, um, the odds are that they're going to be just fine. I, I mean, you know, it, it is more like the flu for 25-year-olds when you look at the mortality rates and the hospitalization rate. Mm-hmm. Um, but if I give you a shot, then somewhere out there, there's a 75-year-old woman who isn't getting that shot, who if she gets it now... Um, it's not like the flu. It's, you know, she's much, uh, magnitudes more likely to be hospitalized and, and die. And, and so it, it made the decision easier and, and, and it proved correct. I mean, most states corrected course after we were one of the first, but most states changed it. And then even the CDC changed their guidance after that, realizing that, that they had made a mistake. So it, it was definitely the right one to, to make. Um, when it comes to the mask mandate and other things, look, we're, we're under constant pressure um, with, uh, with with legislators and others to, uh, to you know to remove those restrictions, and I don't want restrictions one day longer than they're absolutely necessary. We've done a great job in Utah. Um, we've routinely been in the bottom ten when it comes to any restrictions, uh, and and so the, the mask mandate is one of those. Um, you asked a question: Did it influence our decision to move things up? And, and the answer is, it, it was part of, of the discussion, N- not an overriding or an overwhelming part. Um, what, what really has driven those decisions has been the, uh, the, the availability of vaccines as that continues to increase, and we're getting more and more vaccines every week. We've got a, a, a huge shipment coming o- over the next week, a, a really big increase, especially with Johnson & Johnson, which is, which is good news. Um, and, but but what, what drove it was w- when we started to see open uh, scheduling uh, uh, slots, we, we, d- we always want demand to outpace uh, supply. And, and that was another conscious decision that we made early on was, was look, th- there are two sets of problems. You know, there are problems that come with, with too much demand and, and problems that come with, with, uh, with not enough demand. And we decided to choose the problems that come with too much demand, which mm-hmm. means that, that people are frustrated, they're trying to schedule things and they can. Um, you, you know, servers got overloaded and phones got backed up, but, but that was a better choice than, than having shots sitting on shelves um, and, and uh, lives not being saved. And, and so we, we made that conscious choice. Yes, we did have, I, I have an entire team um, we meet at least once a week. Now, there's a larger team that meets uh, three times a week, but my, my kind of inner circle team t- that makes these decisions, we meet, we meet every week. Um, we, we go through, we talk about it. We have healthcare professionals there, um, economic professionals, public health officials, government officials, and uh, we talk through these things. And, and they're, you know, ultimately, I have to make the decision, but they're almost always consensus, and uh, we try to buy out. Uh, try, try to follow the best science, and that's what's led us to where we are today. Did you see the study where they, once they got rid of appointments, how? Yeah, we did, we yeah. did, and and I, I didn't mention this, Amy, and I, yeah. I should have, but one of the reasons that um, we jumped ahead so early um, and opened it up to everybody, the, the, the main driver for that was actually um, for our minority communities. Mm-hmm. Um, because we're, we're sending out these, these mobile units right into the neighborhoods, and we didn't want any limitations. We, we, yeah. don't, want, um, we, we don't want them to have to schedule time, and we don't want to, say, turn anybody away. 
Um, and, and so by opening this up now, we're going to take a, a percentage of our, um, of, of our, our overall uh, doses, put them in these mobile units, go out to these communities, and it's just open to everybody. No, no yeah. you, you don't have to set a time. You come in, we vaccinate every, anybody over the age of 16. Uh, it, it just, we, we just work through it because we, we agree with that. That's the way to get yeah. it done, and we're, we're excited about it. When we come back, we'll continue our discussion with Utah Governor Spencer J. Cox, along with Amy Donaldson. I'm Jason Lee. This is Voices of Reason. We are back with the Loudmouth Project's Voices of Reason, Amy Donaldson and Jason Lee, speaking today with Utah Governor Spencer Cox. Uh, and Amy had uh, a thing he w she wanted to ask Governor Cox about. Yeah, sorry. In my mind, it's a very simple question, but I know I ask these really hard, complex uh, compound questions, but I just wondered, as I've sort of been writing about the pandemic, and, and I've been writing about it for a full, over a year now, um, but I have been asking people sort of what, uh, you know, positives and negatives they've taken, but I just wonder, I think the pandemic has really exposed a lot of... Um, problems in our society uh, with health care, you know, holes in the net, the safety net for people, the in our education system and, and in our economic structures. And you know something about this because of what this did to supply chains and to rural Utah. Um, I just I also, though, was really moved by how innovative people were, how creative they were, how collaborative they were. And I just wondered you've been working on this a year too from two different positions in government what have you seen as far as you know some of the things you've seen that have been exposed as you know inequities or inefficiencies and then how do you think you can address them going forward sure sure thank you it's it's this is what i hope we we spend a tremendous amount of time doing so sometimes we get through these uh these these major issues or disasters or tragedies and we and then we just go about our way um i i, I think this is different and i hope it's different and w what's been amazing to me again trying to reflect and look back as i can we're, we're still in it but um it, it is how we've overcome some of these things and, and those lessons learned so so first let's talk about the inequities piece um, yeah, we, we had been working, in fact, I'd been chairing a group on social determinants of health, this concept that, uh, that your, your, your zip code determines how, how healthy you are and that there are so much more. It's not just access to health care, although that's part of it. There are so many other things that go into, into health. And uh, it's it's access to to good food, um, transportation, mm -hmm. uh, where housing. we build highways. Yeah, yeah. Yep, yep. All all of those different things that go into it that we don't think enough about. And, and it, it felt a little bit academic, to be honest, as we were going mm -hmm. through that. I mean, we look at the data and we'd work on that, and then all of a sudden it became real. And and it, and it became real when we saw, we saw it first with testing, and then we saw it with the spread of the disease, and uh, and and of course now we're. Working through with vaccines, and so we um, and, and it's it's you know our, our our communities of color and, and rural U 
Utah, the, the less affluent areas and, and how they've struggled throughout this, this pandemic. And so we brought some groups together. We recognized it early on. And, and I, I, I'm really grateful because we've made some significant strides and it, it's, it, we're seeing it with the vaccine rollout. Now, there mm -hmm. are still inequities in, in the way that, that people are getting the vaccine and taking the vaccine. But we knew that would happen. Unlike mm -hmm. testing where we had to scramble and bring people together, we, we have this working group that is meeting every week and, and informing us. And, we're we're 15th in the nation as of last week for um, for uh, equitable rollout of vaccines. That's not great, but it's 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 decent. And we <laughs> it's not last, launched, right? It's not 50th. Yeah, it's not last, wherever so we were, yeah. 15th best yeah. in in the nation. Um, and, and but but the, the cool part is we just launched our equity plan mm -hmm. the week before that, and so okay. we, we really expect to, to move up into the top five over the next couple of weeks. We've got an incredibly robust plan that that dozens and dozens of people have been working on, and so 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 again we're, we're learning from this. Um, yeah. the, by the way, the, there was a bill that we we got in that to to allow us um, to to translate things into other languages. We you know under state law we really couldn't do that. We, we did it for emergency purposes, but um, mm -hmm. we're, we're an English-only state, and we got that changed this year because of the pandemic, and that, that's a good thing. Yeah. So, uh, so, so there's, there's that piece. You, you talked about supply chains, a um, big, mm -hmm. big problem, and this is a, a nationwide problem, and, and we're starting to see those supply chains come back on shore. That will be good for Utah, good for manufacturing. The technology that we have now that allows us to do more of that, it will bring more jobs into the state, and so that's, that's certainly a net positive. Uh, our, our ability to communicate and, and these tools, right, for, um, for, for learning, uh, for, for work, uh, remote work. Uh, Utah was uh, ranked yesterday by an, uh, a publication as the number one state for remote work. Um, and yeah. uh, we're, we're excited about that. So that's another lesson learned. But, but I, I just, I'm really excited about this, this concept and I'm, I'm just starting to grasp it. But instead of, instead of preparing for these black swan events, right? Yeah. And, and we do that. We, we're the be prepared state and, <laughs> and we've done pandemic preparation. I, I think we're doing all of that wrong. And there's some people writing about this and thinking through it that are much smarter than me. But instead of trying to prepare for these crazy events, we should prepare for how to deal with any event, right? I, I, yeah. And I don't know if that makes, makes sense or not, but instead of preparing for a specific pandemic, how do you prepare to be nimble and responsive um, to whatever happens? And I think that's how our mindset has to change. We have to start thinking through when something unexpected happens, how do we respond? Who do we pull in? And then how do we figure it out? Because the answers won't be known on day one. We just need the right people to help figure out what those answers are over time. And that's something we weren't really good at, but we're getting better at. Um, do, you, do you see education changing after this? I mean, I know there's been a ton of talk. You've made a huge financial investment. That's been a priority for you. But it seems to me I know a lot of educators from my 20 years of covering high school sports, and they're pretty discouraged and demoralized right now. And I think parents are pretty frustrated. And I just wonder where you see, how you see, how can we pick educators up and, and, and emotionally invest in education? Like, how can we move forward in a positive direction? 
Well, it's it's uh, a priority for me. Uh, it was a priority before the pandemic. Mm-hmm. We, and in fact, if you go back and look at the, the things I was talking about before COVID, yeah. and that's all we yeah. talked about. It yeah. was it was really all around um, how our educators are feeling, and we again before the pandemic, we were losing half of our educators, almost half, in the first five years of their career. And, and at first, I thought it was all about money. Um, and it's, it's, it's part about money. That was the number two reason as we did our surveys. But uh, I was shocked to find out that that wasn't the number one reason that we lose teachers. And, and so that, that is important. And we're working really hard on that. And, and we've got, uh, again, record funding this year, more coming, really focused on our teachers. Um, we've got teacher bonuses that we've never done before for their great work during this pandemic. So I think that that will help. But, but it really is more. It's about allowing our teachers to do what they do best. We're over-regulating the classroom. And uh, the, the pandemic has has made it harder for sure. I mean, we, we do have new tools, but I think it's also given us all a new appreciation for uh, for teachers. There was this there, there was this kind of underground feeling out there that the computers and devices and you know uh, software could replace teachers. And I think we've all learned that that's just <laughs> not true. No. And I'm glad we we learned that. I never believed it, but I, I'm yeah. glad we learned it once and and for all. And so I. I really do think that there will be a new appreciation for teachers coming out of this with the, with the legislature. I mean, putting putting uh, education in the base budget. This is this is wonky, but um, the, the, the legislature passes their base budget in the first couple weeks of the session. In case we don't get a final budget done, we can keep government running. This year, for the first time, they put all of that new education funding in the base budget, so we didn't fight over it over the last week. It wasn't competing with everything else. That's symbolic, but but it's. It's a big deal, and teachers noticed it. And so I, I just I think there's so much more we can do to stop regulating the classroom with high-stakes testing and school grading and all of these things that aren't making our kids any, any smarter, and just let teachers do what they do best, and that's teach. Yeah. When we come back, I wanna, we want to ask uh, Governor Cox about his party and, and where he thinks it might be going, uh, where it might be headed uh, in, the, in the near future. Today, we're speaking with Governor Spencer J. Cox, along with Amy Donaldson. I'm Jason Lee. This is Voices of Reason. We are back with the Loudmouth Project's Voices of Reason, Amy Donaldson and Jason Lee, speaking today with Utah Governor Spencer J. Cox and Governor... uh, Look, I don't need to tell you, there's been a lot of upheaval, even at the beginning of uh, 2021, after a very tumultuous 2020. wanted to get your sense of, you know, locally and nationally, what, where do you think the Republican Party stands right now? And, and do you have a sense of what direction it, it either is going or uh, you'd like to see it go? Because uh, there, there seems to be a lot of, um, you know, some conflict going, uh, going on, especially in... in uh, the high leadership of the party. Yeah, there, there's no question that the the party's fairly d- divided right now. I, I do think we're doing a much better job locally. 
uh, than, than we, we are at the national level. And, and I've been pretty outspoken on this, uh, my, my disappointment with, uh, with the party and the direction that it's gone. And, and I, I do have a vision for the party. Um, and and it's, it's a combination of, 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 of the past, um, where we were, uh, of lessons that, that I think we, we, uh, we should have learned and hopefully are learning over the past few years, and, and then, a, and then a, a, a real direction for, um, for where we can go in a way that will, that will broaden the tent and, and bring more people here. I, I think people have forgotten that, you know, that, that your party membership is not an, an immutable characteristic or something that you're, you're born with, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's always <laughs> supposed to be about persuasion and bringing people in and Instead of yeah. making the tent smaller and excluding people, um, and 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 really trying to convince people to, uh, to 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 your way of thinking, you don't do that. You never convince anyone by 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 hate or by telling them they're 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 dumb or or they're wrong. That that's not how you convince people. And 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 I've I've spoken about this a lot that that our party seems now to define themselves by kind of owning the libs or you know owning mm-hmm. the other party or just you know we, we we're turning into this meme culture instead of real solid thought and 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 policy making. Um, there, there are a few people out there that are that are doing great policy work, but they're they're fewer and further between, and and that's where I, I want to see us get back to. And, and I believe in a conservatism that is about empowering people and and lifting people up. It really is about opportunity mm-hmm. and uh, and and helping people achieve the 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 American dream. Um, and, and that 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 should require us to be focusing on some of these. Uh, the, these groups that I, that I talked about before, you know, our multicultural communities, our rural communities, people who are feeling left behind or left out, um, and making sure that they have the same opportunities uh, that, uh, that 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 we've been blessed with, and, and so that that's my you know that's my vision for for the party. Um, it's it's less about um, attacking the other side and more about leading out and showing a positive vision that will attract mm-hmm. people. Um, I've, I've certainly tried to do that. I've tried to, to, to set an example and, and not be the, the type of person that is, is, is always condemning or tearing down the other side, um, but looking for ways to work together and, and uh, you know, calling out uh, bad actors when I see it, even in my own party, and then, uh, and then trying to set a vision that, that people will respond to. I, I think it's been successful. I mean, we were, we were able to, uh, to get elected. With, with that type of vision, um, but but I I don't know you know and I, yeah. I I see it I see it now on the left too I, I we we, t- we were really divided and we tend to kind of relish in it and and you know cable news and social media yeah. uh, it, it's just it's so toxic right now and I worry about the direction. So so what changes that I mean I know even locally like you have another attack on count my vote and no we don't want you to gather signatures and it seems like they want to make the path smaller, you know, rather than saying, let's be bigger. And I also wonder if you can tell me where it was in in the history of the party that, because I grew up in the Republican Party, um, but that that immigrants were, were somehow not the, a positive thing. To me, being an immigrant and a refugee, those were people who, they shared conservative values. They, I don't know. I, I at some point that shifted though, and now they're sort of vilified by some in the Republican Party, and I just don't understand that because every immigrant I know really could be a, you know, in my opinion, a 1970s Republican. So I, I just wondered if you had some thoughts on sort of how 
how that came about and what you can do to reverse it from a state level when I think there's also people here in the state that don't think the tent's big enough for both Mike Lee and Mitt Romney. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's the question. And, mm-hmm. and of course, we're, you know, we, we continue to get that kind of feedback and, and uh, I, I, I do worry about it. I, I <sighs> it's 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 really frustrating um, to, to me. I, I don't know where that started, by the way. Um, yeah. I, I, I really don't. I, I So I lived in Mexico for two years, and I remember coming back thinking, man, you know, every Latino should be a Republican. Uh, you yeah, know, family I mean. values, the, the hard work, <laughs> the, the entrepreneurism. It's I mean, they're they're just built to be Republicans. There's, there's no question about it. And, uh, and we struggled. How do we change it? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, except that I, I don't think we can rely on, on the politicians to change it. Um, I'm, I'm certainly going to try. But, but I think the politicians are a reflection of us. And if, if we're going to change, it has to be every one of us doing better and, and reaching out. And, 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 and again, trying to find people who are willing to run for office who, who believe that. And, uh, and and helping them get there, but but negative advertising and campaigning um, tends to work. It's why people do it. We we prove that you can do it another way, and hopefully that will inspire more people to uh, to get involved. Um, but but I, I do think it's it's funny how the parties have kind of switched roles a little bit, um, and, and now you see kind of the the Republican Party being the the the, the party of of of. The, the, the working class a little more um, than they were in the past and, and Democrats kind of giving that up and and uh, and now being more of the party of the elite which which wasn't the case before um, and, and they, they've switched roles a little bit that way and so uh, these you know like anything parties ebb and flow pendulum swing and I'm sure that this will swing back I certainly hope it does but um, I I just I'm, I'm going to keep fighting the fight and, and showing that we can be a party that's inclusive uh, that believes in empowering people and families and uh, and helping people achieve the, their very best selves and and uh, if we can do that we'll have success in the future uh, governor Cox listen I, I we've both had the opportunity to know you for a long time and I'm really grateful that you take some time out to, uh, to be with us and I hope we have more people like you in leadership uh, <laughs> to speak some reason uh, to people because I I'm kind of through with this nonsense that's been going on lately I, I feel like we've Jason's been a little discouraged. It's true. It's true. But again, thank you so much for joining us today. You guys are great. I I love being with you, and I I can't wait to come back. I I just want to thank you. I've been discouraged too, and um, but I'm 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 trying to be optimistic, and I think we should be. Utah's a great place, and and we're getting better. Excellent, excellent. Listen, join us again for the next episode of the Loudmouth Project's Voices of Reason. If you have any comments about the show, please contact us via email at boramed at gmail.com or at vorjasonl at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter at ADONSports and at JasonLee1. Our show's Twitter handle is at VORpodcast. Check out our Facebook page, and you can also find and subscribe to free episodes of our podcast on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and other places where you might find interesting content. Be sure to review our show as well. We love to get your feedback, and it helps us grow our audience. Until next time, along with Amy Donaldson, I'm Jason Lee. When you engage in passionate debate, do your best to keep your dialogue civil. Try to be the voice of reason. Voices of Reason is a production of the Loudmouth Project. Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. There's desperation and anguish. More than 80,000 Afghans have since arrived in America. 
But this story is still unfolding. I'm Andrea Smartin. In my new podcast, Stranger Becomes Neighbor, we'll find out what happens to these new arrivals in our communities. Who would help our newest neighbors? Follow us at kslpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen.